Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our Insights series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more Insight Series updates and as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and thank you for joining us for this, the latest Sibylline podcast in our series. This week we'll be talking about energy exporters across the Middle East and Africa and policy risks that we've seen uh, elevate over the course of the last year as a consequence of the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a special report coming out this week on precisely this topic, consequence. Uh, Joining me are the two individuals responsible for that report, uh, Ben Manzin, our Sub-Saharan Africa analyst and Eloise Scott, uh, analyst for the Middle East, North Africa and Turkey. So as I alluded to there, what we've seen over the course of the last year is um, a deterioration in energy prices, particularly in the early stages of the pandemic when oil prices per barrel went south of $40. And over the course of of really the last 12 months, what that has induced is a series of policy changes that might have been uh, in the work in places like the UAE and Saudi Arabia um, in the next decade, but ultimately those policy changes have been brought forward to, to tackle the, the impact of the pandemic and the, the possibility of a post-peak scenario emerging sooner than we might otherwise have, have expected. So with that in mind, Eloise, you know, what are the, the main policy changes that we've seen so far? And I mean, have these been, you know, fairly consistent across different states or or have they uh, differed in their approaches? Yeah, thank you, Phil. It's a, a really good question. There have obviously been some quite rapid changes in certain policy areas, as, as you've described in response to these dual pressures. And this has been particularly pertinent in the Gulf. So countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia, obviously, as, as you alluded to there, had already begun to do- diversify their economies and were therefore generally expected to remain relatively stable economically, although obviously they're they're still taking some considerable financial and economic hits, given the pandemic and low oil prices. But even in these cases, that's not to say that that these policy changes won't be disruptive, even in countries that that are perceived to be more stable, like the UAE and Saudi Arabia. That said, they may also provide sort of fresh opportunities for, for investment there. So many cases, changes have been sort of reactionary, but equally the dual crises of, of COVID-19 and the collapse of oil prices have, as you said earlier, they've just simply accelerated changes that were sort of already in motion. So the Gulf states provide some really clear examples of this. However, there are other ones that we will go into, but there are key similarities across the board. And I think in particular with regards to sort of labour market reform, Um, and attempts to boost private sectors in a bid to sort of slash this ballooning public sector wage bill that a lot of these countries have acquired. So countries like Kuwait, Oman and and even Saudi Arabia have all undertaken measures in the last year or so, if not before, to make it harder for companies, not necessarily intentionally, but this is unfortunately the the effect of this, it's harder for companies to employ foreign nationals, obviously, as, as these states seek to boost local employment. But as I've, as I've alluded to, these countries have, have sort of slightly differed in the extent to which they've pursued these policies. So Kuwait, for example, has taken it particularly far. And the government came out and said that it hoped to more than halve the expatriate population, which is currently around 70%. So obviously, that's going to have some considerable impact on businesses there. But Gulf states have also diverged slightly on areas such as taxation, So while this is an area that um, all states are looking at, they they have differed. So, for example, Saudi Arabia tripled its um, value added tax to 15 percent, whereas Oman is obviously slightly behind and and actually only just introduced 5 percent VAT for the first time uh, that came into effect last month. 
And then additionally, on top of all of this, you've got interesting dynamics such as between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where maybe some of the other Gulf states are lagging slightly behind. But these two countries are really hoping to open up their their countries to greater foreign investments. And they're almost competing, going head to head in, in who can enact more liberal laws to try to sort of attract and retain these expatriates and and these businesses. And I think you could equally throw in Qatar there, uh, looking further ahead, given that obviously it's hosting the FIFA 2022 World Cup. I think it will kind of hope to throw its hat in the ring there. So clearly some some similar policy changes, but but the extent to which states are pursuing them, I think, is differing at the moment. Ben, is there anything you'd add from an Africa perspective? Yeah, I think while we've seen some similar trends um, across Africa, you've also seen some government responses that have been truly muddled by competing priorities. Like in Nigeria, for example, they began uh, 2020 with this enormous budget filled with prospective investments designed to boost manufacturing capabilities, which was a drive in part fueled by concerns that other African nations, such as South Africa and Kenya, would be in a better position to exploit the African continental free trade area. And unless Nigeria got ahead of that, it might hold back the country's development. But these plans obviously quickly hit the cold reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. Spending plans were slashed. Uh, But the government also decided this could be an opportunity to cut the fuel subsidy, which has held fuel prices for Nigerians at an artificially low level at a cost which surpassed health, education or defence budgets between 2006 and 2018, which is obviously a shocking expense. But especially so given that this is the same period that obviously Boko Haram came to the fore. However, there were clearly segments of the government that believed this option was only politically viable because the price of fuel had dropped so much that the increase in cost to the Nigerian consumer was relatively low. But as the value of oil recovered across the world at the end of 2020 and into 2021, prices in Nigeria didn't increase, effectively indicating that the subsidy had in fact returned. Okay, so thanks for that, Ben. It's it's clear that there's a range of of responses, both geographically and then, I I suppose, thematically across different different policy areas, whether it be curbing expats and boosting local employment or or limiting um, the the cost of, of subsidies. But but sticking with, say, Nigeria, Ben, or, or, or Sub-Saharan Africa more broadly, what's the domestic reaction been to, to these measures so far? Obviously, any attempt to cut subsidies tends to be controversial. So how will the, the public react over the course of the coming year? Well, as might have been kind of obvious from what I was just saying, and as you were kind of you were alluding to, obviously, there was significant public opposition to proposals to remove the subsidy, which did and, and would if they were reintroduced immediately increase costs for Nigerians already impacted by rising rates of unemployment due to the pandemic and the inflation of food prices, which have been driven in part by the government's efforts to reduce um, food imports in order to again support domestic producers. As such, as the value of oil began to rise at the end of last year, you saw trade unions threaten widespread strike action if this was passed on to the consumer. So this prompted the government to reintroduce the subsidy which has been estimated to cost nearly USD 300 million a month in March, prompting the National Petroleum Corporation, which has essentially picked up the tab for the subsidy, to warn that this may uh, make it impossible for it to actually contribute to government revenues. Still, despite this kind of shocking economic reality, opposition to reintroducing the subsidy is still significant. Last week, the Nigerian governors called for the removal of the subsidy, 
deregulating the downstream sector to allow prices to float alongside global rates. But in response, there was widespread shock and public opposition to the proposals, which were reported throughout the nation's media outlets. Additionally, leaks from negotiations between unions and the federal government over this issue have indicated that the government is not preparing to remove the subsidy until the situation stabilises, as they are concerned that strike action and protests over fuel may act as a catalyst for wider public discontent, which may result in demonstrations similar in scale to those witnessed last year during the NSAR's police reform protests. So without the removal of this subsidy, likely over the next few months at least, we are going to continue to see that the government doesn't have the revenues to conduct the sort of spending proposals that had been proposed back at the beginning of last year, where it wanted to massively invest in infrastructure and boost manufacturing capability. Without cutting the subsidies, the government doesn't really have the revenue to properly pursue that. Yeah, I think also from a Middle Eastern or if not just a simply Gulf perspective, there are some quite interesting dynamics as well in terms of domestic reaction and not just this year, but potentially looking beyond 2021. I think so far, given that there have been some quite sweeping reform efforts in countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, particularly with regards to liberalising reforms, the response has actually been relatively muted, even though there have also been things like subsidy cuts and removals of certain benefits for civil servants that obviously, Ben, you've discussed with regards to Nigeria. While these are quite controversial, these don't tend to prompt unrest in countries like Saudi Arabia, though this is most likely because domestic unrest there is, is sort of what's well, virtually non-existent besides certain pockets, particularly in, in Saudi Arabia, like in, in the Shia eastern province. But interestingly, sort of even more politically and socially volatile countries like Bahrain and Kuwait have experienced little public backlash, although obviously that is possible that these states haven't enacted the same sort of sweeping reforms as other states have. But it would be interesting to see if these kind of policy areas, such as subsidy cuts, if they do stray into countries like Bahrain and, and Kuwait, how these populations would react, given that they are the ones that are more likely to take to the streets. And actually, interestingly, more recently this week, there's obviously been a rare outbreak of unrest in Oman, with hundreds of Omanis gathering, criticised primarily the government's failure to provide jobs. And then actually this just this week, obviously, the Sultan has come out and said that the government will, in response to this, create more than 30,000 new government jobs. And this obviously seems to directly contradict the Sultan's sort of broader structural reform efforts to push graduates and skilled workers towards the private sector to try to reduce this massive burden of public sector wages. So it will certainly be interesting to see if mounting pressure somewhere like Oman forces the government ultimately to, to sort of reverse some of this ambitious reform agenda that actually is, is what is more appealing to foreign investors. And I certainly think a few states will struggle to strike this balance between appeasing local populations and attracting this crucial foreign investment. Okay, so again, I suppose a mix of reactions, but obviously some of them erring on the, the negative, particularly in the, the case of Oman, as you mentioned. So if you could pick me out, you know, one to two key sort of case studies or countries to watch from both a positive and a negative perspective in, in this field, I think that'd be really useful. Eloise, you go first. Thank you. Yeah, I suppose from, from the MENA corner, the ones that I'm certainly watching at the moment, one of which is, is Algeria for the negative side, unfortunately. The government has sort of tentatively tried to claim that it's opening up the country to foreign investment, but actually because it's highly controversial in certain sectors to have foreign, particularly Western, sort of interference, there's been public backlash to lifting the, the sort of notorious 5149 ownership law, 
and particularly with regards to certain areas like energy and hydrocarbons. This, this has attracted public backlash when the government has tried to, to ease this rule. So it means that actually very few sectors have been opened up to foreign investment. So I think this dynamic in Algeria is just likely to aggravate the socioeconomic and financial pressures. And also the fact that the country's economic woes are probably only going to deepen given that domestic energy demand is rising, but there is just a sheer lack of kind of investment and infrastructure. Uh, and this means that actually in the coming years, it's, it's going to struggle to export as much of its natural resources as it would have done, which is obviously a, a crucial source of, of revenue for the government. And then another one, again, on the negative side, before I turn to the, to the more positive case, is Kuwait. Um, obviously, Kuwait is also in quite a precarious position financially, despite weirdly its um, considerable financial buffer. There are real liquidity concerns that are going to deepen it probably in Q3 and into Q4. And this is really hampered by political deadlock over the absence of a, of a public debt bill. So I think that's certainly one to watch, given that tensions both politically and socially are rising in Kuwait. And obviously, we go into this more in the report. And then just from my side, to end on a more positive note, I think Qatar is potentially um, a country to watch in terms of a more positive outlook. Obviously, earlier this year, Saudi Arabia and the other blockading states lifted its boycott of Qatar. And I think this will really benefit certain sectors like Qatar's financial sector and things like that. And the country certainly will hope to retain any kind of foreign investment that it that it gains, obviously, a huge boost from um, from FIFA 2022. So I think hopefully in the next couple of years, that will be a positive case to watch. OK, thanks. Yeah, I mean, Kuwait is an interesting one, I, I think, in, in many respects, not least because some of the changes that we've seen there as a result of, of coping with the, the boycotts in 2017 were actually quite positive in terms of improving its own resilience. So it's interesting to see how, yeah, the policy landscape evolves there in, in due course now that it can become accustomed to, to trading and, and more easily with its immediate neighbours. But with that in mind, then, could you just give me a few key threats and opportunities looking across the region? Well, aside from Nigeria, for reasons that I think I've made clear, I'm also watching Angola very closely. Um, while the country has been able to postpone the repayment of its debts, um, particularly to China, which has been delayed for three years, it is unclear if this represents simply a sort of stay of execution. Unless Angola can boost its economic growth, it will simply face higher debts in three years' time and will be in the same position it was last year when it appeared the country was facing default. This will depend first on maximizing revenue from its oil industry and its current privatization initiative to boost its non-oil sectors. However, major questions remain over the future profitability of its oil industry, with Angola's National Oil, Gas and Biofuels Agency warning that production could fall 30% in the next decade without new discoveries. Similarly, the privatization initiative, while ambitious, has got off to a slow start with sales between 2019 and 2021, raising only about USD 87 million. So Angola's progress will need to be watched closely to see if it manages to right its economy in time for its debts to become due. Okay, thanks for that, Ben. I guess then just to sort of sum up, uh, now that we've, we've had a sense of you know countries where, which are on a more positive trajectory with regards to, to policy changes and, and those where um, you know the risks are, are perhaps a bit more evident, or the downside risk, I should say. You know, just give me a couple of, of the main you know threats and opportunities that you see emerging in the in the course of the next year uh, across both regions. Well, I think, like like I said, for the sub-Saharan African region, it'll depend a lot on whether or not we see economies begin to stabilize, begin to make steps towards reducing their debt, begin to boost uh, or reduce the currently very high levels of unemployment, which will give them the space to make potentially unpopular decisions, which 
while uh, damaging in the short term, could prove crucial in the long term for in- ensuring that the country is able to, countries are able to diversify away from oil and properly fund the sort of infrastructure and investment needed to uh, ensure that the, the economies are more uh, buoyant and, and lively in the future. So that, that's the main thing to, to be watching over, over the next year or so, especially in countries, like, like, as I mentioned, like Nigeria and Angola, uh, where they have a lot of pre-existing challenges. So yeah, their ability to recover um, from, from the COVID-19 kind of um, recession will, will, will be a massive indicator of whether or not they will be in a position to make the sort of decisions that they need to make in order to, to, to boost the economies going forward. Yeah, I think interestingly as well, from the particularly from the Gulf perspective, sort of putting Algeria to one side slightly, I think the Gulf is particularly interesting because there's, given the, the oil wealth, there, there's almost become a sort of social contract whereby these populations almost expect to have these sort of lucrative government jobs with, with nice state handouts. And I think we're already witnessing difficulties in reversing these kind of trends in countries like Oman and obviously countries like Saudi Arabia are also trying to do this, trying to withdraw some of these, these extensive state handouts and benefits, obviously to try to diversify the economy and boost private sectors. And I think some countries will be more successful at this than others. But I think along the way, certainly this, these are obviously longer term trends, particularly with regards to countries like Saudi Arabia, where Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is really focusing on the, the correct training because obviously youth unemployment is, is quite elevated there. So ensuring that people have the right education and training to go into diverse and private sectors it is really important. But yeah, I think some countries will struggle to continue with this sort of ambitious reform programme and shifting these populations away from state handouts towards a more healthy balance between the public and private sectors. And I think that is something that, that is, as I said, a, a longer term trend, but one that will impact businesses, because if businesses suddenly find it harder to, to hire people and there are more restrictions and regulations with how they go about hiring people, just as one example with regards to the, the sort of labour market reform, I think certainly there are challenging times ahead. But if governments are able to stick to these reforms, a lot more economic stability potentially. Excellent. Thank you. I, I really hope that some of these points that we've alluded to here would obviously come out in a little bit more detail in the in the report that we'll be uh, releasing later today. Uh, and for those of you listening, if you have any questions on the, these topics, then please get in touch with us at info at sibyline.co.uk. And before we go, I'll give you the forecast for the coming week and a few uh, events to watch. Firstly, on the 29th of May in the UK, we've got the second Kill the Bill National Day of Action, uh, which could see a widespread protest and potentially some low-key low clashes with police uh, in hotspots like London and Bristol. And looking further afield on the 4th of June over in Hong Kong, for the second year running, authorities have, have banned uh, any form of, of vigil um, to commemorate the, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square in 1989. Um, and although obviously they've used the COVID-19 pandemic to, to justify what is effectively a political restriction on, uh, on public protests, we could still see some turnout. And as a result of a heavy security presence, particularly around Victoria Park in Hong Kong, uh, there may be some localised disruption. Similarly, on the same day, the 4th of June in Mali, we've got more potential for uh, clashes and demonstrations uh, as a result of a commemoration of 
the movement which led to the to a protest movement against former President Ibrahim Aboubakar Kaita last year. And although the country has since seen the removal of said president as a result of a, of a coup last August, there are currently ongoing tensions between military and civilian personnel within the government. And as a result, that, that kind of heightened, the heightened tensions in, in that atmosphere could result in, in clashes, particularly in, in Bamako, the, the capital of Mali, over the course of, of the coming days. Then looking ahead to next week on June the 6th, we've got the presidential uh, election runoff in Peru, which is decided a contest between the right-winger Keiko Fujimori and left-winger Pedro Castillo, who, and it's the latter who currently looks uh, most likely to emerge victorious. And while he's been moderating a variety of of, of quite extreme left-wing positions over the course of the last month or so, it still seems that his victory will set to bring in some anti-business reforms over the course of, of the next year uh, or so, including, uh, you know, for example, tax hikes and the renegotiation of, of co- uh, contracts in the extractive sector. So uh, a mix of events over the course of the, the coming weeks, some tied more to you know, tactical threats and demonstrations, others leading to larger policy shifts in the medium term. Uh, I'm Philip Riding, the lead Middle East and Africa analyst at Civiline. This has been the latest in the Civiline podcast series. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.